Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Annie Duke. She is a brilliant person. Her new book, Quit, is it is a terrific book. It is incredibly readable, and I think it's an important book. And I loved reading it, and I've been thinking about it ever since I read the book. And Annie knows when I read it, it was months and months ago. And it's still, uh, every day it comes up in, in one way or another. And I'm sure you hear that from, from people. Uh, as your earlier book, Thinking in Bets, does. Uh, because you frame questions about decision-making in a way that isn't so math-based that it seems too difficult to, to grapple with, even though there's a lot of math sort of underlying a lot of the ideas. And this question of uh, when to uh, be dogged uh, in one's pursuit of something and when to relent so that one can doggedly pursue something else seems really relevant. So Annie, thanks for being here and thanks for writing the book. Well, thank you for having me. I have to say that's the such a good compliment for me when someone says that my books aren't super mathy. Because of course, as you say, like underlying all of the concepts, there's a lot of math, but I don't give people equations. I give people more sort of frameworks for how to think about things. And let's say like, I, I don't want you to have to feel like you are doing calculus when you're, or even algebra, frankly, when you're reading one of my books. So I take that as a great compliment. Thank you. Well, well, I think it is important in, in the books be, because, I mean, one of the things you point out, and it's something that, you know, obviously Kahneman and Tversky point out and Gladwell point, I mean, it gets pointed out, Michael Lewis and his versions of this, is narrative is so powerful. And one of the reasons that we don't think clearly has to do with a narrative we've told ourselves about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And- Math can't fight that. Math no. can fight that for people like you, but math, and not, and very really, math can fight that objectively when you're thinking about other people. But for yourself, it's very difficult. So a narrative has to replace the narrative, which you talk mm -hmm. about really well in the books. And so I think the choice you make, and I, so I wonder, as a writer, how much thought goes into the style in which you want to, with which you want to present this information. So. Uh, I think about my amazing editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, who's at Portfolio, uh, who um, I very much credit with the success of any of my books, because this is something that she understands. So I, I believe that, you know, narrative is really important because I, I started off before I wrote books, I was giving talks. And if you're going to give talks and you don't want people to be snoring in the front row, you have to give people narrative, right? You you have to be able to illustrate it for a way that activates the emotional parts of their brain so that they become engaged with what you're saying and they care about what you're saying so that you can tell them the more technical stuff. So if you read my books, there's lots of scientific studies in there. It's just that I get to them after I've tried to sort of illustrate it. So with Thinking in Bats, I remember I turned in the first chapter to her um, and there was a narrative in the first chapter about Pete Carroll and the Seahawks, uh, the very last play of the 2015 Super Bowl, where Pete Carroll called a yes. pass play instead of a running play. They lost the Super Bowl. You know, the world exploded. Um, and that occurred about midway through the chapter. 
because I spent the whole first half of the chapter explaining why you should care about this narrative. So Nikki, in the way that only Nikki can, reads it. And she says, what do you think about moving Pete Carroll to the front? Right. And I said, but people won't know why they care about it. They won't know why they're supposed to be paying attention to it. And she just very gently said to me, totally understand. It's obviously your decision as a writer, but could you just try it for me? So I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. And I moved it to the front and I was like, that was it. It was just that the heavens opened up. Well, you're up. immediately, right. So that's the moment where you understand, oh, this is the way I'm going to tell these stories. And, and of course, by the way, that's, we have such strong psychological psychological like muscle memory associated with these huge sporting moments culturally mm -hmm. that even if you're not a sports fan you've heard about this Marshawn Lynch not getting the ball right so you've heard about right. this moment and you've known and and you the way you pose the question in the book which is you know well was it a mistake and right. would he make that same call again and should he have been castigated for it or not is really the great answer frame. is no it was a good decision <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I was like, I was like 70% there. I understood that the narrative was really important. Oh, I got so, that this was the narrative to tell. I just told it in the wrong place. It's so difficult. All right. I know where I want to start with this, but actually, because you're one of the, were for a long time, one of the best poker players in the world, like this decision-making stuff's really hard. I was in a hand yeah. last night. I'm going to oh, I was in a hand okay, last okay, night. Okay. No. And, and it's like no, a perfect excited. example of this. Yeah. It's, it's torturing me. I was in a hand last night. I had both a straight and flush draw. I had position, but um, I had both a, str a straight and a flush draw against somebody who plays a lot of hands, like way too many hands. And he raised and I moved in knowing that, um, and I moved in for, let's say, a quarter, like the full move in still was only like half the pot. But I moved in knowing that it was possible that he he often plays two big cards looking for a flush. That was possible. He could have had two pair. He could have had a set. But also I had 15 outs because I had mm -hmm. fully both things. And I didn't hit, you know, he calls. He has a set of sixes. I don't hit either of my cards. And like all morning, I've been running the hand over and over in my head. Um, you know, not how I, you know, knowing how I got there and I could have made a lot of different decisions. But for, in that spot... And I was talking to Andy Frankenberger this morning, and he was like, and Bellin too. Andy Bellin both were like, yeah, that's, yeah, that, you had no, that's the right decision. And I was like, yeah, yeah but like, I got what felted. are you going to do, fold there? Like, no. You know, I mean, the, th the thing is that it, it's really the right decision, because as you said, you have 15 outs twice, so you're a favorite. Yeah. And not only that, but uh, if you call, particularly against somebody who's active and kind of frothy, uh, if you call, you can only win if you hit. Yes. So so if you move in, sometimes maybe you do actually have to hit the card. Um, but you have 15 outs twice, so that's still a good decision. But now you could also just win by not ever finding out if you hit. So yeah, but the, yes. as a poker player, you have to be so sanguine about those things, right? Like you have to get to this point where you're just like, well, next time. <laughs> because yes. It's about running those decisions over and over again. But what you're getting to is this really big problem with decision-making. This is what which I was is ask this, you, yes. that What's true prospectively for us cognitively 
is not the same as what's true for us retrospectively. So prospectively, we understand, like, if you tell me that story, uh, what should I do? If you came to me and said, I've got 15 outs twice, I've got position. I only had, it was a river. I I only had 15 outs once, but it still was, I still, I I, I wasn't the favorite. I was a slight on, you know, I was 40%. Sure. Yeah. But the, but the fold equity is why I moved in. Right. Because then it. Right. Of course. Yes. So, so, you know, the thing is that prospectively we understand what we're supposed to do. And I I can tell you, there's really interesting research on this, actually, on what we call the law, law of large numbers, which is understanding sample size. So if I were to say to you prospectively, like if I wanted to understand if people eat fish are smarter than people who don't eat fish, how many people would I have to sort of survey? You, Your answer would be a lot, right? Like you can't just find one person who loves fish and eats fish all the time and say, oh, look, they're really smart. Obviously, that means that people eat fish are smart, right? Like that you you understand you need you would need to go do something that's akin to the scientific method and go find a big sample size and all of that. But retrospectively, once you have a friend who only eats fish, who's brilliant, we're like, oh, yeah, if you fish makes you smart, right? And this is what's happening to you here with this hand is that prospectively, you can say, look, I had 15 outs, plus I had all the fold equity, plus this guy was super like juicy and was likely to have nothing. And so I decided to not have to try to hit, but to actually try to bluff there. Uh, was that a reasonable place to bluff? And you can say in prospectively, yes. But then when you lose, everyone thinks they're an idiot. Yes. Everybody, because retrospectively, it it doesn't it doesn't engage the same part of our cognition. So what and do you do? Really, sorry, what do ahead. you do? No, this is the question, right? So also, you because how do you, um, how do you parse this for yourself? Which is you want to train yourself to ask the good question the next day. How could I have played it better? What could I have done? I want to review it, right? And I want to look at it because otherwise I'll never get better. And um, and the only reason I like love, you know, one of the reasons I love playing is because I love doing that analysis and trying to get better, right? But then what do you do personally to free yourself from the result? Because all of us, right? All of us look at results sometimes. Mm-hmm. And right, I have trackers. I write the results down. I'm you know, and I know it. I know what variance well, is. Well, because results I over time it. matter. Yes, that's the difference, though. It's results over time. Poker's one long game, but so right. is life. Life is one long yes. game. So we have to remember that uh, one time does not make a decision good or bad, right? Like one bad outcome doesn't make a decision bad. One good outcome doesn't make a decision good. Just like if I go through a green light and I get in an accident, I shouldn't. That shouldn't make me stop going through green lights. Uh, if I go through a red light and and I'm safe, that shouldn't make me think that I'm supposed to go through red lights. But this is basically the way that we behave uh, in terms of this hand. So how do we release ourselves from that? Yes. We start to focus on the play itself, right? So the way that I do that and I make it sure that I'm not priming somebody is if I'm talking to a trusted advisor. So let's say that I'm talking to you. I'll actually describe the hand, but I won't tell the person at any moment uh what my decision was. So I'll give you an example. Oh, that's here. great. So yeah. I don't I don't know what your hand was, but I'll make it up as right. if it's this. Yeah, make it up. Um, so I'll say, okay, so uh, I was on the button. I was. I was on the button. Yes, there exactly. Yes. So I was on the button and I had uh, eight, nine suited. 
And four people limped in in front of me. I limped with my eight, nine suited uh, and the big blind called. I would say something about this is how many chips I had, so on and so forth. Okay. So I have eight, nine suited. Let's say I have eight, nine of hearts. And now the board comes uh, seven, six king with two hearts. So I'm up and down with a flush draw. Uh, This person who's like pretty maniac, like he's super active. He's playing over 50% of the hands he's dealt, uh, really loves to bet into the pot. Um, I've seen him bluffing quite a bit. He bets half the pot. I get one call in front of me and I have this hand and then I stop. And I say, oh, that's great. What do you think I should have done? So oh, that's great the, technique. That's a great technique. Because the problem is if I say, so I called, what do you think? I've now done to the person what I do to myself, which is I put them retrospective instead of prospectively. Right. So now they're going to now talk about it anchored to the move that I actually made, which I don't want them to do. So notice that at the point that I asked my first question, you don't know whether I won or lost the hand. You don't even know what I did on that round. So now I would say to you something like, well, what were the people like, you know, and maybe I would recommend, I might recommend raising there. Um, I might recommend calling to make a move on the next turn. I'm definitely not going to tell you to fold. Uh, But then I would talk and then you can query me on that and say, okay, so why, like, what, what would be your case for rate? So if I say, well, I think I would raise, you could say, what would be your case for raising? If I, uh, if, and then you could, and then if I say, I think that you should call, you could ask me about that. In either case, if I say call, you should say, well, what, what do you think about raising there? And then I could tell you what I think about it, vice versa. So, so all of this, you don't know. So then you can say, thank you for that. Thank you for telling me uh, I called. Okay. So now I tell you what I did. And then we go to the next card and I say, the next card is a blank. So it's the two of spades. Uh, The same person that really active player bets, the other person folds, what do you do here? Right. And now I can say, well, I don't know. This person's pretty active. Um, Yeah, sure. They were leading into two people, but it sounds like maybe, I mean, that could be like a weak king, for example. Uh, They could have a flush draw themselves. Uh, It seems a weird way for a set to play. So I think probably since I'm going to call anyway, I might raise and try to get the fold equity. So you can say, well, what do you think about just calling there? And I could say, well, I mean, I think that that's reasonable. If you think that their hand is strong, we can talk through that. Right. Then you can tell me what I did after that. Notice that I still don't know whether you won the hand. So you're now stopping me from being biased from the outcome in the same way that you might be biased from the outcome. So does this will totally free free you from the resulting problem? Because when you're getting the advice of the person, what is the way that we normally do it? Right. Like I had eight, nine suited, uh, you know, four, three people called in front of me. I called the board came. um, Yes. You know, six, seven king, two hearts. Then they did this. And then on the turn I raised, they, 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 you know, they called, it turned out they had three sixes. Uh, I blanked on the river and lost the hand. And then I try to go back and ask your opinion. Now, now you're in the narrative too, right? You're that's in the, the emotional problem. journey of the narrative too. And that's a problem. Right. And you're going to try, gets- and no matter what, you're going to try to make the hand make sense. So there's a part of the brain that's been called the interpreter. And this is where we get this retrospective problem is that it tries to interpret the events to create causality that makes sense. And and so what it's going to do is it's going to reject the randomness that's the influence over the hand. So if you tell me that you lost the hand, 
my tendency is going to be interpret to interpret the way you should play the hand in light of the fact that you were going to lose it, which of course you couldn't have known at the time that you made the decision. So I'm trying to put the person who I'm asking to help me in the same state of knowledge that I was when I was having to make the decision. Otherwise, I can't trust their advice. And it's going to pull me into that resulting problem because I'm going to have pulled them into the resulting problem. And does it work? Does that, because so much of what you talk about in your books, whether you use the word, which sometimes you do or not, is the way in which ego can really thwart decision-making. Yes. Because ego and sense of self. Mm-hmm. Because that's what a lot of, particularly what you get at poker and then extrapolating the, these kind of life decisions, right? If I had, you know, if uh, if I'd won that hand, I mean, I was thinking about this. Uh, you would think you were a genius. Well, if I won the hand, it was more like uh, the way that, you know, I'm raking in the chips. People are laughing at, the, you know, the vibes of a table. That's like yeah. people, t- you know, the whole, the whole, and it was very late in the night, and it was like there would be all this reinforcement mm-hmm. of the status of being good, and of course, mm-hmm. the decision making was exactly the same with either result. And so training oneself, which is what's, you know, the examples you use about business, and I'm going to get into details about this, but you you, you use a few different examples in, incredibly well of not just people, you know, you do this great parallel between the, the one guy who built that series of stores and then the big company that didn't understand what was really valuable. And and you you know once it's an individual and once it's actually a whole company and a different series of decision makers who still got the same trap happen, which was this identity yeah. ego thing. Would you say as a person, you, Annie, are you able to more quickly than most to dispassionately look at your decision-making process? Meaning, are you able yourself through these things to actually not let yourself get result oriented or does it still fucking happen sometimes? Well, okay. So let me just say this. There, there's no human being to, for whom it still doesn't just fucking happen. Right. Um, this is the way we're wired. The question I think is, does it happen less than it does? Yeah, that's people? huge. Yes. Uh, which is huge. And also how quickly does it take for you to write yourself? Right. So you can have this emotional piece of it saying, you know, ah, I shouldn't have never raised there. That was so stupid. But how quickly do you write yourself and say, no, let me actually think about what the line of play was that I choose chose. Let me try to actually think about this in the scope of things that that second piece, I think just literally because I played poker for so long. That thing I think most really good professional poker players are actually quite good at Um, because you have to be. How could you possibly survive if you're not? You have to train yourself. And Eric Seidel, for me, was so helpful in getting me to think this way. You have to train yourself to just say, that's ridiculous. I'm just moaning. I'm resulting. That's why we have the word. Let me actually think about process here. Um, But of course, I find myself doing it. Like, you know, when I... I hit a shot in tennis that where I go down the line and and they happen to, you know, cut it off. And I go, that's so stupid. Why didn't I return cross court? You know? Oh, that's excellent. I'm so glad you brought this up because I actually play so much tennis. So Me seriously. <laughs> Me too. I, yeah, but so I don't do that in tennis. I'm able to do what you, like, I compete so frequently 
and so intensely at tennis that I understand what the patterns are. Like I never get mad at myself for that. I might get mad that I got tight. Um, I might be upset if I get tight. It, it's this moment um, in for a me. moment, but like, yeah, tell me. It's just this moment for me of if oh, I go I to lob and I know this. it's the right time to lob. If I hit the lob short, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? It's this split second, right? Then, breathing. then I very quickly say, well, because it was the right shot. And what I'll say, and I'll actually use poker terms for it, like to get myself out of it, because I'll I'll be done with it before the next point plays, right? It's that initial reaction where I'll say, um, well, that's going to make them nervous about getting too close to net. Or if I go down the line, it's going to stop them from coming coming across the center window. So there's future equity there for me. Oh, that's right? so. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, because if I could transfer, I get so much more. Um, still at poker, I I replay because it's purely. Think it about it have like tennis. The different has different indoor, right? It triggers different things. Oh, yeah. this is really you're so good at all this stuff. Because like, yep, yeah, tennis. I was playing a kid the other night, and he was in this league. I play these matches, and we're hitting, and he was really good. Um, but as you, you probably might imagine, like my big edge isn't figuring out when I'm hitting where, how I'm going to beat the person. Yeah. And but then when we're playing, I was like, oh, you know, this guy's solid. But he, I saw he was just so nervous, and I felt at a certain point I just said to him because he even said it out loud. Like he goes, I don't understand. And I said, because you're fucking holding your breath, man. When you're trying to, yeah. you got to breathe. I go, you got to consciously breathe. Like right. breathe. Like you're holding your breath, and because you're nervous. Um, and I don't get somehow, yeah, you get tight for a second in tennis, I can just let it go. Whereas in poker, I, because I'm not as, you know, I poker yeah, I just play right, it over right. and so over because I, of. Exactly. So I use the same, I use the poker oh, stuff in order to get myself out of it in tennis so that I'm not tight for my next return. Right. So I do the same thing. Well, there's future equity. Now they're going to stay off the center window. It doesn't really matter that they got that ball back. They're going to be worried about the line. Totally. Of course. Right. Yeah, no, um, but but yes. I see people all the time. Like you, you catch them once. Well, it's sort of the reverse, right? Like you catch them once. Um, uh, you catch them once down the line, and they're standing in the alley the whole rest of the match because they just don't ever want that one thing to happen to them again, right? Oh, so, so, all right, yeah, we're well, not going to get tennis yeah. geeky for people, but I will say one thing, like which is, it's amazing the, the how often you can play people who don't realize that the only way to get to expose your backhand is to actually play to your forehand enough. Like yeah. most people just think the move is to go to your backhand, which is not the move. You right. have, because you can run around it, you can get in a great, what you have to do is play it out there. And it's just so similar to all the rest of this, right. which is thinking um, in a new way about how to solve a strategic thing. If it doesn't work going at the person's backhand, you can get there another way, which the other way thing is so much what you talk about. Yeah, so I actually I actually stand in the far ad corner to make to get people to go to my backhand. Because it makes them think that I prefer my forehand, but I actually don't. Right. And so that makes it so that m almost all my returns are backhands at least for a good part of the first set until they figure out that they should actually be hitting to my forehand. How often do you play? Every day. I played today. What level are you? 40. Oh, that's awesome. I, it sounds like you're like a five zero or something. No, four know. five. No, I'm a four yeah. five. Yeah. No, five zero is like I'm fifty six years old. Like if I play a five zero yeah. thirty year old guy, he's gonna yeah. fucking kill me. But anywhere but around just for four people who are to listening, five zero, four five is really freaking good. 
it means you just played a lot of tennis. Here's where I want to actually talk about how it, uh, this stuff applies to you. Because I want to talk about beginnings before we talk about quitting just quickly, okay, which yeah. is because you have had a seat before you even started codifying this stuff. You know, you were one of the best poker players in the world at a, and you were the best or second best woman poker player in the world for a long time. And but you didn't intend to do that. No. And you talk about this in, in the book. Uh, but I would love you to just talk a little bit about like who you were, what your identity was, what you thought you were going to do with decision making and then, you know, how you turn to poker, because that's actually an example of this stuff, you know, in a way. So can you just talk about what you were set on, what you thought your life was going to be, what your identity was when this, when the turn happened to poker? And then we'll take you out of poker, too. So we start there. Yeah. So um, I, I started off my um, adult life as an academic and uh I, I mean, my full intention was just to become a professor. So I was planning to get a tenure track position at hopefully, you know, a leading university. That was my goal. Um, and I never really thought I was going to do anything else. I mean, I went straight from college to graduate school, went to UPenn, had a National Science Foundation fellowship. I did five years worth of work there. I had job talks lined up, you know, so, I mean, I was working on my dissertation and going out for job talks, but I... Uh, Sort of on the side, my brother, Howard Letterer, was already quite a famous poker player. I think my fellowship was $13,000 a year. So <laughs> there weren't like vacations in store for me, except that my brother, when he would go out to the World Series of Poker, would uh, bring me out there. And this was when the World Series of Poker was at Binion's Horseshoe Casino, uh, which is in downtown Las Vegas, before they had the Fremont Street experience. Yes, before Tony um, Shea changed the whole thing. Yes. Well, long before that. Long before yes. that. Yeah. Long before that. Uh, the nice hotel was the Golden Nugget across the street. And he was kind enough to bring me out, usually for about a week to 10 days during the tournament um, to come and, like, you know, have a vacation, which I could not otherwise afford. And I played a little poker um, during those times when he would bring me out. I used to watch him play back in New York um, at the Mayfair. And I would sit behind him some and watch him play. And so I, and actually also at the bar point on 14th and 6th. And so I, I understood enough about like the mechanics of the game and whatnot that when I went out at the World Series of Poker, they don't actually let you sit right behind somebody. You would have to be pretty far away uh, yes. behind a rope. And that's pretty boring. So he just gave me a little bit of money and sent me on my way to the Fremont Hotel um, where the nicest uh, restaurant in there is, is like a Carl's Jr. for actual. Um, and I would play like a dollar to three, you know, and then eventually sort of over the course of graduate school, I kind of worked myself up way up to like being able to play like 10 and $20 limit. Yeah, it was Hold all limit. And, I mean, it was mostly limit poker. Yeah, there was then, very little limit. limit. I play, but I you're, play. you're studying at school. What were you exactly studying? You were studying in uh, some form of this whole yeah, I was studying behavioral science. Yeah, cognitive science. Um, so we could think cognitive science at that time was kind of a, a new and budding field. But the idea was uh, essentially how does the organism, us, um, 
process the world to make kind of models of the world. And so this would this would go all the way from like issues about how do you learn to how do you make decisions? So judgment and decision-making would be in there. Uh, language acquisition, how do you learn language? Um, even things like color perception, taste, these kinds of things, right? Like how are we building models of the world, right? So what is our cognition? How do we think about the world? How that color, and when you just said that color thing, I mean, there's, I've gone down such a Donald Hoffman wormhole that the color thing is just, yeah. I'm obsessed with the question of the color, but um, so that's amazing stuff to study. And yeah, it was in its infancy even then. And yeah. I mean, it's still it's still totally in its infancy now. Um, but you start playing poker a little bit, but you still were going to continue with your studies until oh, you got sure. sick. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then what happened? Why couldn't you continue your studies? I got really sick. Right. Yeah. So I, I had been battling a stomach issue that's called gastroparesis. Um, and essentially, uh, it means your stomach muscles kind of stop working. They don't contract anymore. So when you eat, the food just sits in your stomach. So you can imagine that that's very uncomfortable. Um, and uh, it, the food's only going to come out one way, and it was just not a pleasant way for it to come out. So I had lost about 20 pounds. Um, and basically, my idea was, I'm just going to power through this. I'm going to go become a professor. And then, and then I'll, you know, I'll deal with the health issue. I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't seeing doctors. It's that uh, they, they couldn't quite figure out, like it took them a long time to figure out what was going on um, and it's hard to treat. So what happened was right before I had my first job talk at NYU, I just ended up in the hospital. Um, I mean, I was just really sick. And by the way, just so you know how sick I was, I was in the hospital for two weeks. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I mean, that's no joke. So it was bad. So, um, you know, at that point, it just became, I just realized, like, I'm not going to be able to go out on these job talks. I've got to postpone those. And in academics, that means postponing for a year because it's a seasonal job market. And I need to actually just take some time and take care of my health. So during that time when I was sort of taking time off to to try to get healthy, um, I needed money. And there were just a lot of constraints. Like I didn't know how I was going to feel from day to day was the main constraint. I had a lot of really bad days. Um, so, you know, I needed something with flexible hours. So my brother's the one who suggested, well, you've played a little bit of poker while you've been out like visiting on these vacations. Why don't you try playing poker for a living? Um, and, you know, I guess the rest is history because I didn't go back to academics. So I quit. Right. And so, you know, that is a really big thing if you think about, like, okay, this is such a perfect example of perspective and retrospective thinking. Now you're famous Annie Duke, and you won all this, made millions of dollars playing poker and became very famous and got on television. Like, all these things happened. But in the moment when somebody says, I'm quitting the University of Pennsylvania's grad school to, and this is pre- um, WPT whole card cam. It was this not is, on television. This is, I mean, the People, WSLP. If you said poker, yeah. it was like yeah. poker, drug dealing, sex work. I mean, this was pre-rounders. You were famous already when we were writing rounders. Like, yeah. so we're not famous, but like famous in our, like, like, like famous. poker famous. You became famous after, but I'm saying you were, you were, because it was pre, pre-rounders and pre-whole card cam. There were no Doyle and and sometimes Phil, that was nobody in hog like yeah. nobody was famous, famous. But like 
I imagine that making that decision to quit, though now it's like, oh, of course. What kind of pressures did you feel around that? Um, what were people in your life saying about that? And how did you know to stay the course? So I think, first of all, I was lucky because my brother had already terribly disappointed my parents. Right. That's <laughs> funny. Funny and great. Yes. So I think that was really helpful. Um, but, you know, joking aside, uh, what I will tell you is that um, I felt a tremendous amount of shame and having let people down and having failed. It's uh, important. When, you know, through for the next two decades, so much so that this this was a time when, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones. I mean, some people did, but they were in briefcases. And um you, you couldn't, you know, you didn't just text people and your email address wasn't the email address you had for your whole life. And so I actually lost touch with my advisor, my wonderful, amazing advisor, uh, Lila Gleitman, who is um, one of the great loves of my life, actually. She's amazing, really very much like a, a, a second mother to me in some ways, in some ways, a first mother to me in many ways. And I lost touch with her. I think because I was really ashamed, I just assumed that she was disappointed in me, like really deeply disappointed and heartbroken by my having left. So in 2012, I was sitting in a doctor's office. 20, 20, 25 years later. This is 18, 18 years later. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean and um, I'm sitting in a doctor's office because I've got a torn bicep tendon. And I'm going to see a shoulder doctor because my shoulder is frozen. And I look over. So it's an orthopedist, right? So I look over and there's Lila sitting in the waiting room. Also in the waiting room. Also in the waiting room. Uh, my husband was with me and I didn't say a word because I was in such shock. And I just walked over and he he tells the story like, why is she going over to talk to this old lady? Because yes. Lila at this point was about 80. Oh, wow. And um, I just went down and sat down next to her. And uh, I just said, hi. And she just looked at me oh, wow. and just her whole face lit up. And there was never one second where it was like, why did you do this? You know, whatever. It was just, oh, we get to pick up where we left off. And from that day forward, less the pandemic when we could only talk on the phone, we saw each other every single week for the next decade. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we talked very deeply about this quitting episode, actually, where she said to me, you know, which was the right thing, like, you don't need to follow in my footsteps. I just wanted you to be amazing in the world, right? Like, you're, I, I love you no matter what you were doing. I was just sad that we weren't in touch. So, um, yeah, so we met every single week after that. And she died um, two summers ago. I was with her in the hospital uh, about a day before she died, hosted her memorial here. And my book, Quit, is dedicated to her. Um, I mean, that's incredibly yeah. beautiful. And and it gets to, well, one question. did she, Had she followed and known how successful? Yes. Like, did she know? Yes, she had. And she was really proud. 
And I think about the shame that we carry around quitting. Yes. That here was this woman who was really proud of me. And I was so ashamed and really ungenerous in just assuming that she would be ashamed of me because of the way that we think about quitting, that we lost two decades. And I am so grateful that we got that last decade together um, because it allowed me to get closure. I mean, we talked about this even when she was in the hospital, like at, at, at when we were talking about, because I was talking to her about finishing my PhD, which I'm currently doing. And, you know, I brought it up again and said, I'm so sorry that we lost all that time because I felt so bad about having left, you know? Yeah, and, because this fear, yeah. Annie, there's this, so talk a bit about, right, the, the, the fears around quitting aren't only about the actual opportunity, business opportunity, right? The fears around quitting have to do with the collateral damage that we imagine, reputationally, relationally. So, I mean, um, because the thesis of your book in a way is is, is that um, just because you're on a course doesn't mean you have to assume you should stay on that course. Right. And that your life, it's worth looking, um, not each day, but you could, but it is look worth looking at where you are and deciding if it's really where you want to be or if you want to be somewhere else. So talk a little bit about our cultural fears that are around quitting and, and, and trying something else, particularly around quitting the kinds of things that, as you say, people are proud of us for trying or for doing. Yeah, I think I think we can sort of put bucket things in three different ways. One is what's kind of the cultural talk around quitting. So quitters never win, winners never quit. You know, it, quitters are losers. Um, we, we just, we don't admire people who quit things. N- not only do we not admire people who quit things, but we're um, we're quite critical of them And what's interesting about it is that we're critical of them even when, even just because they quit before we know that they should. So if you take like Seinfeld or Barry Sanders as two really good examples or or Dave Chappelle with the Chappelle show, the cultural talk around, like if you take Chappelle People were so mad they couldn't understand that someone would quit at the time when their show was like the most popular thing and they were being offered this humongous contract that everybody said he's on drugs and he's in a mental institution. Like that's how much we're like, no, like don't you can't quit. If you do, you must be on drugs. But you even talk about it in terms of mountain climbing, mountaineering. Right. And I don't want to spoil the, this part of the book, but Annie, the thing she was talking about at the beginning of this conversation about how she will tell the story of a hand. She does that, you do that magnificently in the book, which is you reframe certain stories um, in a way, and you do it throughout the book, but there's this part in the beginning of the book where you reframe the way certain things happen on mountains uh, that really makes us ask these questions. But a a way to say it without spoiling it for people is, is, you know, uh, we often celebrate the people who, say they're going to get to the mountaintop no matter what. And oh, someone who sure. quits, we often uh, don't. There's this amazing thing toward the end of the book about or like the late middle of the book where it's about um, 
a doctor getting to the same kind of question about quitting a certain job that's become corrosive for her um, and all the reasons she fears she fears quitting. So you were saying there's cultural reasons. What are the there's other two reasons? reasons? But I think that the cultural reasons are actually, I think it's a little chicken and egg because I think they're actually a result of the other two buckets. So one of the buckets is what we would call, would go into the bucket of sort of motivational psychology. And the other would go into the bucket of behavioral psychology or, or cognitive psychology, what we think of as cognitive errors. In other words, errors of, uh, essentially errors of, uh, calculation, right? So let's let's bucket those two. So the error of calculation piece would be um, something like the sunk cost fallacy. So this is very common in poker, as you know. Um, so the sunk cost fallacy is that we'll take into account what we have already invested in an endeavor in trying to decide whether to continue and spend more. Yeah, it's so the walking poker, out of a movie thing. It's the walking out of a movie nobody thing. Nobody will walk out of a movie. I will, I've always walked out of movies. Yeah. Because you, but, but yes, people think, well, I've, I've already taken the time to get here. I've spent the money. Money on the ticket. But, it, but of course, why spend another minute if you're having a bad time? That does, you've right. spent that money. Because we you don't could think take, that way. Like, let's say that you have an hour left in the movie. What could you do with that hour? Right. So we forget. So there's opportunity costs associated. But you hear people at the poker table say, well, I had to call. I had too much money in the pot. Right. And it's like, uh, no, you didn't. You were like three uh, percent to win. Right. So uh, so th this is th this is the basic error. Right. It, let's say that um, uh, there's some stock that's trading at 40 and uh, you look at it and you you wouldn't buy it. You just you don't think you're sort of looking at the the financials and what's happened historically, and you're like, I don't think it's a good buy at forty. I think I would lose money if I bought it. So you'd decline to buy it. What I can show is that if you already own the stock and had bought it higher, so you bought it at fifty and it's now trading at forty, that that exact same stock that you wouldn't buy today, you will continue to hold. You won't sell it. Well, where this today. gets tricky though, because that's and the examples I just was telling the story from your book to some people the other day because it's. That study um, is just incredible of those people in the business school classes. It's yeah. amazing. Um, and uh, where if if you said you bet of these two companies, one's going to do better, like you will keep betting on that company, even if you have the choice to allocate differently or different ratios, uh, you will, yeah, you will you back your earlier decision. But where this gets tricky is for some people, they're able to, like, of course, what you said about the money in the pot doesn't matter, but where people get confused is... How much money is in the pot does matter about whether you should call based on what the other person bet because if it's now suddenly offering you the right, you have a three percent chance to but win, not, but you only have to pay one percent. This is how people. No, no. What I'm saying is right. this is what people conflate they yes. to make because they want to tell a narrative. So they don't understand. Yes, if if you Annie bet only one percent of the pot and that's all I have to call and I have a three percent chance of winning, I'm supposed to call the one percent of the pot to get the three, you know, there's times when you should, but it yeah. So, be so the way that own. you would think about it is if someone parachuted into the hand, me into the hand and yes. Brian said to me, do you want to take this hand and call a hundred dollars here? So let's say there's like a uh, 200 in the pot and you, Brian Koppelman say, I'll hand you my hand. Right. And you can bet a hundred dollars. Right. So I'm getting two to one from the pot. It means that I have to be able to win a little over 30, 3% of the time. And let's say there's one to come and I have a straight draw. I shouldn't call there because right. I'm 20%, right? Yeah, so I, should, it, I yeah. shouldn't call. Um, I, I will decline to do so. I'll say no. But if I'm in the, but if I've, 
But if I've gotten there, I'm more likely to want to. Right. But if I'm the one who's held the hand the whole time. So the part of that $300 that's sitting in the pot came from me. Then in that exact same situation where I would say, no, don't give me, I don't want your hand because I don't want to put $100 in here getting two to one. Um, I will put $100 in getting to two to one because I've already, because it's my money that's in the pot. But where it's tricky is like, there's a lot of, like where it gets tricky, I think. And I'm interested how you think about it is. Every single day you can find with numbers backing it up, Warren Buffett talking about how happy he is when the price of a stock he's bought has gone down because it allows him to buy more of that stock and how profitable that approach has been for him. Uh, that if once he's made the decision, he still will check the decision, but if he still feels, and I guess that's the big difference is, according to him, if we just take him at his word, he will constantly be evaluating it. But if it still feels like the right decision, he will still buy that stock and in fact be happier to buy it lower because of what he thinks is going to happen. In two, in, in sure. Yeah. He, he's a value investor. And so he has people doing quant work for him. And when he determines that the stock is still worthwhile, he will continue to hold it. But if you look at the history of Berkshire, it's not like they bought six stocks in 1960, whatever. And, and those are the only stocks that they've ever had and they don't sell anything. Of course they sell things. Right. And they acquire certain companies and then sometimes they'll sell those companies. Uh, what he's saying is that generally when he's looking at it, because he's a value investor, he's looking for underpriced assets. Yes. And he tends to be long hold. Uh, and that is the intention going in. But there are certain things that can occur that will tell him that this is not something I should hold anymore. And uh, otherwise, like, you know, you would buy Facebook and you would never get rid of it, even though now, obviously, it's lost a tremendous amount of its value. Now, you may think today it's undervalued. That's fine. You can buy it. Um, but he doesn't, even for Warren Buffett, he doesn't just hold, period. And I think that this is no, where we go wrong, yes. is that what we don't recognize is that we have so many forces, whether it's sunk cost, endowment, loss aversion, so on and so forth. Then we can get into the motivational bucket, which you alluded to, which is things that have to do with our identity, cognitive dissonance, internal, external validity, which we can talk about, that all converge to the, uh, we have a tendency to want to stick, that we can come up with all sorts of rationalizations to get us to think that it's rational for us to stick. One of them being, well, of course I shouldn't sell this stock because Warren Buffett doesn't. Except right. that what people don't realize is this, that the decision about whether to stick or quit, I'm not telling people they should quit everything just as I would never tell people they should stick to everything. I want people to stick to things that are worthwhile and quit everything else. What that means is that you have to understand what worthwhile means. And that's the thing that Buffett understands is what's worthwhile. I do think that it is really difficult when the potential upside offers asymmetrical returns. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about in the arts for a second, you know. Yep. And and I know the the you do a great job in the book of pointing out like where the story is that the person didn't quit even though there were all these signs that they should quit. Um, well, the thing they leave out is that person grew seven inches between. 10th grade and 11th grade. So they were not the same basketball player. And so the, it was, I understand all that, right? Um, but the Fountainhead was rejected by, like it's not apocryphal, like the letters exist by 45 
publishers. Uh, we can argue, you know, the culture can argue about whether Ayn Rand, Rand matters. What the culture can't argue with is um, lots and lots and lots and lots of people proved the supposed experts wrong about Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's commerciality, right? And I think, so I, how do you, kind of in a, a very, like, how do you square that? Like, you know, Rounders was rejected by every single agency and my wife's books were and her movies, like I've just, and take it away from the personal. I've just witnessed it over and over again that the gatekeepers are often wrong, especially in art where they're looking at what's now and maybe the artist is actually able to see something that's later. Um, so you could get all the signals that you're crazy, but by continuing on, you might have these asymmetrical returns. So how do you think about that? Yeah, so, okay, so let, let me just say that anything power law can, we have to watch out because it can become a rationalization to stick. Yes. So, so yes. and just for people who don't know what power law is, it's a very small percentage of success, but very, very high returns when you are successful. So this is a very classic thing to think about in venture. Almost every single company fails, but then the ones that succeed, particularly in the software side of businesses, will generate incredibly outsized returns. Uh, that tends to be true in the arts as well, right? Like for every thousand people who are trying to be a writer, right? Like there's a Brian Koppelman. Okay, so so the question that you have to figure out is, are you the Brian Koppelman or not? And to tell you the truth, that's a question that's somewhat personal for you. Um, so when we're trying to think about what's worthwhile, we can think about what's the probability of success, right? But then what we also have to think about, what are your values, so, so what are my values, right? What am I willing to give up in order to try to get the thing that I want to get? So this is piece number one. Um, so that's going to have a little bit to do with, for example, can I feed my family Yep. if, if I'm still working on this book, right? That everybody's rejecting. Okay. So you sort of have to balance those things out. So, you know, when people are talking about, for example, James Dyson, who tried, I don't know how many, 27 versions of the vacuum or whatever, yeah. um, uh, he had a way to support his family while he was trying to pursue that dream. That's going to really change the calculus for you in terms of setting for yourself, what's the deadline within which I can still try to be doing this, right? Um, so I, I think that it's really important when you're standing here to say, how long am I willing to keep going? And to try well, to what just signs, sort of and, and what that. signs, like I think deadlines are difficult because- it's hard well, you, to you can ask yourself, do I want to never have, have had a successful script when I'm 65? Well, sure. And also quit. It's funny you say quitting. You know, I very consciously, having read another book by John Acuff about quit, quitting, or it wasn't Acuff's book, actually. It was something way before that. But I'd read something that, that talked about, don't quit your job if you want to write, but find a way to use the job to support the writing. Switch the right. focus. Like, switch the focus Switch the focus of the order of your day. Switch the focus of when you're going to work from the place from which you feel most alive. But don't put all the pressure on that so that you right. can do that thing and create sustenance. And that was like really um, important. But but ha I guess figuring out how to disambiguate um, whether you know from these questions of of what you're taking as a sign that you're not nuts. And what's actually a sign that you're not nuts is very difficult. Yeah, that that is difficult. And that's where I think like mentors can be really helpful. That's good. Yeah. Um, because they'll have lived it, you know, and so they can understand. Look, I, I think we can all agree that uh Simon Cowell, when he really told someone you will never have a career in singing, was never wrong. Right? Because we could all hear it. I mean, 
No. So, okay, this is, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember this in the book. No, I have watched those experts be wrong. Like I've directly well, witnessed it. I'm talking in it. the first rounds. So I'm not talking like once you get to a matter of taste. I'm talking someone comes in and they literally are toned They would down. have sent Bob Dylan out of the room. No, like that's exactly well, where it's difficult. So I, actually, I've heard Bob Dylan sing perfectly in key. So I don't know if they- <laughs> Yes, I mean, he's my you know he's my favorite artist who ever yeah, lived no, in agree. any I mean, form. Willie, Willie but- Nelson, right? Who has a particular type of sound. No, I'm talking about like, uh, what was his name? Was William, uh, whatever. Yeah, you William know, I mean, Hunt, there, there's sure. There's people who you, you're like, There's okay. an objective. Okay, yes. You're saying that there is- um, that it may be possible. And look, we're talking about edge cases, which is not what the book's about. And I don't want to get lost in the edge cases. I just thought, I basically have a full throttled endorsement of the book and I love it. Um, And I've given it to many people. I think that um, there are edge cases where in Uh, particularly the arts and in certain other things where- But I don't disagree with you. And what I'm saying is it depends on what your values are, right? So- if you love writing so much that you are okay if nothing ever hits and you're still 60 and doing it, you be you. I'm like all for it. Those are your values. You get joy out of it. As long as you don't have some sort of idea that you're going to end up with a number one show on TV. Oh, yeah. Um, and misery. And not, okay. not misery. And not being in misery. Right. Then like that's if fine. you're not being um, putting yourself in a position of misery, but that's the quip, exactly but the, right. because taking the edge cases out of it, what you what's amazing that you're talking about is. Um, and I think it's so empowering is just because one has marched down a certain course and told everyone in their life that that's who they are and that's what they're doing. That doesn't mean that you can't be be happier by flipping. That's exactly right. And that's so powerful and important in your book. Yes. That's true. Whether you're talking about, you know, let's stick with the arts, right? We, we can talk about what the broader goal is, but also what the project is. So I am just guessing that you have started writing scripts or started developing show ideas where you were like, you know what, this is shit. And you ended up throwing it out. Okay, so so you have to be able to do that. Now, a lot of people, and I'm sure that you know these people, start developing something. They fall in love with their thing. They've put lots of time and effort into it. They're very endowed to it. It's part of their identity. And no matter how much people tell them, I don't really think this is going to hit, they will not let it go. And you can see it wasting tons of their time, right? Whereas if yes. they were to pivot and develop something else, because they're brilliant and life's too short for a brilliant per- person to get stuck in some shit, right? Then maybe they would have been happier. And I know for myself, even I have I have books where I've sort of started the proposal, or I've started the research on it, where I ended up going, you know what? This I'm going to pivot and that that's going to allow me to write something else. Yes. Well, and you know, your book is a, a cousin of a book that one of my closest friends wrote, which is Seth Godin's book, The Dip. And yes. Seth gave you a, a quote. And and um, and I love seeing his his blurb um, on, on the book. And I think that the two books are great to be read together because Seth spends a lot of time on, on this very personal question that we're talking about here, which is how do you know personally which right. thing you're in? I mean, your book talks about making sure you ask these questions and look at the industry and look at questions of identity. And Seth's book talks about this question of are you in a dip or a cul-de-sac? And and I think that the, you know, he chooses not to answer the question, give you a way to answer it. And your book gives some ways of very directly answering it. And I think they're great to um I highly be read together. That book. And I'm sure you've read the dip and yes, I have definitely were aware read of it as you were thinking, as I was doing uh, my research. About this. Yeah, you, you would have to have, um, because you're a thorough person. 
is the greatest gift of knowing you can quit something? Just even having that and knowing that there's this option. Can you talk a little bit about what the benefit of that is? Because I do think there's huge oh, gosh, benefit yeah. in it. Look, here's kind of the sad thing about getting stuck in things is that when you start something, you know so little about what you're starting. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can go to a poker hand, right? Like I know two cards. That's it. So uh, as I decide to play that hand, I'm going to see what this. the other players are doing. They're going to tell me some things about the cards that they have. Um, I'm going to see new cards come. Uh, so I'm going to discover a whole bunch of new information as I go along. And um, wouldn't it be sad if I couldn't fold? Right. Because at the time that I choose to start to play the hand, I just don't, I mean, I know nothing. And that's true, whether it's like I'm starting a job or I'm starting to develop a show idea or uh, I'm I'm choosing to get on a road to go to work. Right. Like, I don't know, maybe there's going to be an accident I didn't know about or something. I don't know. Um, I'm developing a product for a company. What do I really know? So the fact is that we as humans, because we're not omniscient and because sadly we don't time travel, at least that we know of, um, I have to make decisions knowing almost nothing. Now, after I start things, I'm going to learn new stuff and I'm going to learn lots of new stuff. And that's where quitting becomes so important in the same way that folding a hand of poker is, is such an important option to have. Because when I find out that new information and I find out, you know what? This thing isn't actually going as hoped. I'm climbing up a mountain and gosh, I see a blizzard coming or a yeah. very heavy fog is rolling in, right? Or uh, I um, I have a business and I've developed the Walkman and everything's going great, but things are starting to shift over to digital. Do I want to keep selling the Walkman? Is that where I want to keep all of my chips? Do I want to keep going up that mountain, even though a heavy fog has rolled in and I can't see anything? This is new information. Quitting is what allows me oh, to so get out of it. Brilliant! It's so brilliant. Like, like even what you just said about the two cards, not to bring everything back to poker, but obviously I think about this all the time. Like Eric Seidel said, one of the most, I just couldn't believe it. You know, because when you're young, you read all these poker books, if you're me, and I raided the gambler's bookshop, I read every single book. And all the Texas guys that I loved were like, when I, once I make a read and I decide those are the two cards, that's it. That's my read on the guy. And I'm going to the end. And I was with Eric and Seidel in Vegas once. Yeah. Early, like right out, like in like 99 or something like that, you know. And I go, hey, man, when you're at a table, he goes, I go, so you make your read and then that's it. And he goes, absolutely not. No. I said, what? I go, no, what do you mean? Because, you know, all those guys yeah. said, I go, what do you mean? And he goes, I am taking in every, every second is an opportunity to get new information. And what those guys are talking about is they don't want to get scared. I understand, like, just for the person listening, like, what Doyle was, is talking about is he's not going to suddenly get scared if he's made a read, whenever that is. He's going to stick to that read and not let other shit, like, scare him off of the read. But what Eric is articulating is, no, 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 you are, yes, you're not going to get scared, but you are going to stay really alert and aware. And if you suddenly learn that what you thought of was um, a two-gapper and the person actually has a set of queens, you're going to fold. That's right. And uh, you have to be ready to pivot in that way and quit the hand. Uh, you, you have to because this is the other thing that 
quitting allows us to do. It allows us to move to opportunities that will cause us to gain ground more quickly to the goals that we have. So when we choose to start something, we start it because we're trying to to achieve something, right? We have some sort of goal in mind. We're we're heading toward a destination. Yeah. Uh, and we think that the thing that we've started doing is going to get us toward that destination. So we can think about it in a more uh, sort of micro way, like um, uh, if you want to be a successful writer, maybe you're developing a particular script. Okay. And you think that that script is going to get you to where you want to go, which is successful writer. We can also think about it this way. You choose to be a successful writer because you're trying to achieve happiness and fulfillment in your life. Or maybe you choose to be uh, to try writing because you want to ch- achieve financial success in your life. So something broader. So we can think about any of those things. So we have some sort of destination in mind. We choose to start something because we think it's going to help us to gain ground toward that destination. So now we get some sort of information that is not actually helping us to gain ground toward that information, not in a way toward that, that goal. Would- yeah. Toward that right. goal. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's causing us to lose ground. Maybe it's making us unhappy. Uh, or maybe it's just that it is a little bit, but if we went and pivoted, if we quit and went and did something else, that some other opportunity might actually cause us to gain more ground. In that case, that's where the option to quit becomes really incredibly valuable because I can ditch the script and start to develop a new one, right? That yes. is going to get me to where I want to go faster. So this is, I think, the biggest thing that's really counterintuitive about quitting, which which I wish everybody would take away, which is quitting done well, when it's the right time to do it, does not stop your progress. It actually speeds you up. It gets you to where you want to go faster in this simplest sense. We can think about it this way. If I'm on a road trying to get to a destination and there is an accident in front of me, I would be better off exiting the road and getting on a clear one because I will get to my destination more quickly. That's true of anything we're doing in life, right? If I decide that that I want to be a famous writer and I'm developing a script and it's not getting me to that state, maybe I'm supposed to ditch that script. I'm not saying for sure, right? Because you could be like, you know, you could have Harry Potter on your hands and you got rejected 27 times, whatever. But um, maybe if I reject that and go develop something else, I'm going to do better. Maybe I think that being a writer is the road to happiness and fulfillment. But maybe it turns out once I decide this is what I'm going to do for my career and I'm having to stare at a screen all day trying to write, that it's total freaking misery. And I hate it. But I'm unwilling to quit for fear of I'll have wasted all of my time. What does it mean? I've declared to everybody that I'm a writer. This is now my identity. How are they going to judge me if I quit? They're going to think I'm a loser. All my writer buddies who I go out for drinks with and I play my poker game with are going to think that I'm a sellout because I stopped doing this and I went off and got a real job, you know, like whatever the the narrative is in my head that stops me from doing that. And meanwhile, now you've got somebody who's been trying to do this. They're mediocre at it and they're freaking miserable. Well, yeah. And I, I'll say like, I, I quit. It's funny when I was saying, you know, obviously I'm like, well, well, I was rejected a bunch of times, right? But, and that's true. But I mean, I had a career that I did ultimately when we sold one script, I quit that career. I was in, you know, an executive in the music business. And I was, I, I was, that was what I always thought that I would do. And that's, I was in good gigs at that and I had done, but I like, and then I went to law school at night and I graduated, but I was like, I'm, I spent all that time. I mean, I spent years and yeah. I got through the whole thing at night. I finished. 
No, I don't want to be a lawyer. And I did, like, despite that being part of my identity, I and I was so, I was able to uh, pivot. Now, and, and, I will say, like, I, was, people... I, I had school paid for by my parents, and that was an incredible, like, you know, I didn't have debt, so I was able to, and that debt, may, no debt makes this all easier. Well, that, that's uh, for sure. I mean, quitting quitting is definitely, there's a privilege to quitting. There's some people who can't just up and quit their job, right? But in the case of you spending all that time in law school, those are the situations where it's really hard to quit. It's like, well, then how come I did all of these nights and I yes. took away my social life and yeah. I put all of this time and all of this training and won't it have been wasted? And won't my parents who paid for this be incredibly disappointed in me, right? And it becomes very hard to walk away from those things, even when you've discovered with 100% certainty that you're not happy. I mean, you you mentioned the doctor, Sarah Olston Martinez, ER doc, ended up being an, a hospital administrator also, um, was miserable for years before she got in touch with me. She had heard me on a podcast talking about quitting when I was sort of road testing some of the ideas that I was writing about. And uh, she, you know, so I got on a Zoom with her because like I was in the middle of writing a book about quitting. So I really wanted to talk to her. And you know, she told me, I said, well, what's going on in the job you're in? And it was just like some series of details, which were like, I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. Yes. At which point I was like, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Why isn't she switching? Cause she had another job offer with an insurance company. Um, you know, and she said things like all the other ER docs will think I'm a wimp that I couldn't hack it. Right. The people who have mentored me will be disappointed in me. But then she said the most amazing thing, which was, what if I take the new job and I hate it? And right. that was the thing that really got me because I said, what, I, you know, in my head, I was like, but you hate the job you're in. Don't you want to take the chance now? So I just said to her, well, imagine it's a year from now and you stay in your current position. What are the chances that you're going to be happy? And she said, zero. Because she had been miserable for years. Nothing was going to change. I said, well, let's say if you switch, what are the chances you're going to yeah. be happy? And she said, I'm, probably like 50, 50. And I said, well, is a 50% chance of happiness greater than zero? And she, it was like a light bulb went off, but look at this woman who had been in, in this job that she hated, not switching for fear that maybe the new thing wasn't going to work out, which is a bias in and of itself. It's called omission commission bias. Um, but, but also because she was so afraid of like the other doctors are going to think I'm a wimp there. Everybody's going to be disappointed in me. What about the 15 years that I put into this job? Won't it have been wasted? And she was now prepared to waste more years in service of all of that. These questions are so valuable. And uh, this is why I love all your books. Um, Thinking in Bets, which we didn't get to talk about, is really incredibly useful for figuring out how you make decisions and putting sort of confidence intervals on what you think is going to happen, which is, there are a lot of rewards of doing that. Um, yeah. My Sam and I do that. My son, Sam and I do that all the time now. And it's great to say like, what, you know, what, what do you really think uh, the chances of this are? And we're th thinking in bets. What would you say the odds are? Yeah. And it's very useful to do. So go check out Annie's books and uh, you can find, where can they find you on the internet? Where are you? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I just started a sub stack. So you can find me there for sure. The sub stack is actually called Thinking in Bets. Um, oh, subscribe me to your, to subscribe me, please. Yes, um, I will. And uh, and then you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke, uh, same handle on Post News. Um, and then I have a website, AnnieDuke.com, uh, where you can sort of find out about all things me. 
Um, and then the last thing is I'd love for people to check out the Alliance for Decision Education, uh, which is a nonprofit I co-founded with my husband, um, where we're really trying to take the kinds of concepts that we talked about today, which are all decision-making concepts, and start to teach those as early as kindergarten to kids, uh, mainly so that they can, I mean, think about the information landscape that people, you know, the kids are having to sift through. How do you figure out what's true? How do you figure out how to construct a good decision, you know? How do you, how do you think probabilistically, right? Like, how do you know what to make of the things that occur in your life? How do you figure out what you have agency over and what you don't? Like, these, I think, are all the most important questions of a generation, much more important than teaching kids trigonometry. Um, you know, if I had to think about what's going to create a great society. And I, we just really believe that uh, by teaching decision education in every K through 12 classroom, it will lead to better lives, individual lives, which will then lead to a better society. And we think that there's nothing more important right now. Yeah, there's a whole, um, we could have an entire podcast discussion really just on how clueless most of us are about why we're making each decision that we make. And though, yeah. even if you read a little bit about this stuff, you understand that so many things that you decide on during the day you're really not deciding for the reasons that you think you are. And if if you would just take a step back, you might make a different decision or you would at least understand why you did um, much better and you'd be living a life much more connected to who you are. So I think that's super um, valuable. And um, thank you, Annie Duke. Uh, folks, you can find me no longer really on Twitter. I'm sorry uh, to say mostly. You can find me on, on Instagram. Uh, occasionally I'll make a TikTok. Um, or you can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Um, Annie, you have my real email address, but I do check this one too, so you can email me there. All right, thanks everybody. Uh, see you next time. <laughs>